Welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm David Tate, and this is part 34 in our series going through the Gospel of Matthew. And I know that this week we were supposed to be heading into Matthew chapter 11, but I hope you'll forgive me because today I actually have something really exciting that I want to share with you, but that's going to require us to go back and look at something that we haven't talked about since part nine in this series. What I want to do today is I want to go back and I want to look again at Matthew chapter two, verse 23. And the reason I want to do this is because if you remember early on in this series, whenever Matthew is still authenticating the identity of Jesus and proving that Jesus is the Messiah, one of the tricks prophecies that he cites is that he says that according to the prophets, Jesus would, quote, be called a Nazarene. And if you go back to that video in part nine, I actually spent some time breaking down the various different theories that people have proposed in regards to that specific prophecy. Because if you go look in the Old Testament scriptures, there is not one single specific prophecy that says he shall be called a Nazarene. And I think that I still stand by practically everything I said in that video. And so if you go look at part nine and you rewatch that, I still stand by basically anything. But there's something that I came across in my own personal studies that got me thinking a little bit. And it kind of gave me an idea that I wanted to share with y'all because it's something I don't see a lot of people talking about. Don't get me wrong. It's not a fringe opinion. It's something that a lot of scholars talk about but I don't hear people just talking about in general. And I wanted to share it with y'all because the more I thought about it, the more excited about it I got. And I think it actually strengthens the position of what really Matthew is trying to accomplish here. And so I hope this excites you and it might even introduce you to some stuff that you're not even familiar with. And so real quick, let me kind of just recap what we talked about back in part nine. Uh, I'm going to give a very condensed version of it uh, just to kind of catch you up to speed and just remind you exactly what was going on here right? So this is in Matthew chapter two, right? And if you remember the way that Matthew chapter one began was with the announcement in the birth of Jesus. And then Matthew chapter two began with the Magi arriving to visit Jesus. And then chapter two culminated with basically Herod sending a bunch of people to try to kill all the children in Bethlehem. And then Joseph and Mary and Jesus escaping down to Egypt until Herod died, right? And then after Herod dies, Joseph gets up and he takes his family back into Israel, but instead of going and dwelling in Bethlehem, it says he was afraid to go there, and after being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the district of Galilee. And he came and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And back in part nine, whenever we were talking about this, I talked about how this was probably the most difficult of all the different, different fulfillment prophecies or fulfillment passages that Matthew cites in his entire gospel, specifically because there isn't a specific prophecy that says he shall be called a Nazarene. And so what we did last time is we actually looked at all the different ways that Matthew formulates this, and we just noted how the way that he cites this particular prophecy is different than all the others, right? So whenever he talks about Jesus being born of a virgin, he says that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, right? The next prophecy he said is that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. So you can notice that there's this certain structure that Matthew uses, right? He says a very similar thing for the next one. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she was refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Matthew does cite an additional prophecy in the midst of all those, but he has a different formulation, but that's because it's not Matthew himself who is citing the prophecy. It is actually the, um, you know, Herod's um, basically religious leaders who just basically inform him that the prophet said 
that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, right? But in all the places where Matthew is citing prophecy, he has this structure that he says, right? Then what had been spoken through the prophet was fulfilled, saying, and then he quotes it. But when it comes to the Nazarene part, he says something slightly different. He says that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled, right? So it's plural. And then it doesn't say saying, it just says he shall be called a Nazarene. And so what we noted last time was that first off, it isn't attributed to one prophet, but multiple prophets. In Greek, it would normally be tu prophetu, that's singular. But in this instance, it's ton propheton. So Matthew seems to have the idea that it wasn't simply one prophet that asserted that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, but it was several prophets, right? So it's several different prophets testifying to the fact that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Secondly, it doesn't have to be written down but it is spoken or mentioned, right? And so this is very interesting because basically it would imply that the, the quote, he shall be called a Nazarene, doesn't have to be specifically found in the Hebrew scriptures, but basically the notion of it has to be found in the Hebrew scriptures, right? So it was spoken by the prophets, but we don't have to find that exact phrase written down right? And so we talked about that. And really the thing that we were wrestling with was how are we supposed to go about interpreting this? And I presented three different theories, right? Theory number one is that this is a pun having to do with what it exactly means to be a Nazarene. That's the one we're going to talk about again today. Theory number two is that it's social commentary having to do with the reputation of Nazareth. And then theory number three is that it is both, right? And if you want me to break down all three of those theories, you can go watch part nine. Because in part nine, I broke down each of those three theories, and I think we spent like 40-something minutes just talking about this one particular prophecy, right? And I talked about different things, and I really think that it is theory three. I think that Matthew is actually just like, he's suggesting a very complex way of really handling the Hebrew scriptures, where he's being, he's kind of playing fat, not fast and loose. He's He's being very educated about this, honestly. He's being very scholarly about it to where he's using this one word and showing how it shows up in various different ways throughout the Hebrew scriptures to suggest something about the Messiah in general, right? So I kind of hold to theory three, but theory three is a combination of theories one and two, and so I hold to both, really all three of these, right? Um, we're not going to talk about theory number two today, and so if you want to know about theory two, go look at the other one. The main thing I want to talk about is theory number one because there's this extra information that I've been processing that I did not address or even think to address in the previous video, but honestly, this might be some of the most like standout evidence to me. If you if you were to ask me today what I think Matthew's referring to, the stuff I'm going to talk about today actually probably would come to the forefront of my mind. Uh, whereas if you go look at those other videos, there were other things that stuck out to me more. And so let's look at theory number one again. That whole theory is that it is a pun having to do with what it means to be a Nazarene. And if you go back to that video, what I really broke down was what does the word Nazareth even mean? And ultimately, we have to just kind of trace the word back to figure out what the word means, right? So the word Nazarene in English comes from the Greek word Nazarios, which we read in the New Testament. However, if they're living in the land of Israel, right, the city wouldn't originally be named in Greek, right? It would have been named in Hebrew or Aramaic because that's what the people spoke at that time period, right? So Matthew is transliterating the name of the city in Greek in the New Testament, but in its original language, it would have actually been Nazidi, right? Nazidi is the name of the city in Hebrew, right? Well, then we have to ask, what does the word Nazidi mean? And really within this, there are two primary theories, right? On one hand, it could be the word Nazir, which means consecrated, devoted, holy one. It could even mean distinguished or prince, right? Or 
It could be the word netzer, which means sprout or shoot or branch. And this is where things begin to deviate in this video from the last video. Because in the last video, and, and way back in part nine, not the last video, like in the series, but back in part nine, right? I kind of talked about the first theory, like the not seer thing. I talked about that very briefly and I referenced the Nazarites and stuff. And I kind of was very quick to discount the idea that Matthew was leaning towards this word, right? And I actually spent most of my time talking about the word netzer and talking about the idea of the Messiah being a sprout or a shoot or a branch, right? He is the branch from Jesse and stuff like that. And once again, I still stand by everything I said in that video, right? Because I think that there is a clear teaching in the scriptures that the Messiah would be known as a branch, right? We even see the word netzer being used to describe the Messiah in one case, and there's a different word for branch used in several other places. And whenever you actually look at the intertestamental Jewish literature, right, in between the Old and the New Testament, a lot of people were interpreting the Messiah as being a netzer, like a branch, right? And so I still stand by that. But what I want to do in this video is I want to revisit the first interpretation, right? Natsir, consecrated, devoted, holy one, distinguished prince. I want to revisit that one. And the reason I want to revisit this one is, I'm not going to spoil it yet. I'm going to try to let the anticipation linger because I want you to get excited for me, or with me, right? Let me ask you this question. Whose son is the Messiah, right? This is actually a very similar question to what Jesus asked the religious leaders, if you remember this during the final week of his ministry, he says, whose son is the Messiah? And they say, he's the son of David. And Jesus responds and says, well, then why does David call him Lord? Right. I'm not trying to trick you or anything here. Uh, well, actually, I'm trying to trick you, but I'm not trying to trick you in the same way that Jesus is. Right. I'm actually asking, um, or I'm trying to trick you into answering the same way that the religious leaders answered. Right. The Messiah would be the son of David. And that's because you would be correct by and large from a biblical perspective. Once again, yes, I agree with Jesus that there's the whole complication about David calling him Lord. But when we think of the Messiah, we usually think of the royal Davidic Messiah promised to descend from the line of Judah right? And the main reason we think of this is because this is the one that is most often clearly identified in the scriptures, right? So if you go back to Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, you have Jacob blessing his sons, right? He goes through every single one of his sons and he gives them a blessing. And whenever he turns to Judah, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, Right? And so whenever Jacob looks at his son named Judah, he says, Judah is going to be the ruling tribe of the people of Israel until Shiloh comes. The word Shiloh is a Hebrew word that basically means something along the lines of he unto whom it belongs. Right, So what Jacob is saying to Judah is that Judah will be the leading tribe of all of his brothers until the day that a man arises from Judah unto whom the ruler, staff, and the scepter actually belongs. And whenever that man shows up, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, not simply the brothers, the peoples, right? The idea is that there's going to be this royal kingly figure to arise from the tribe of Judah and Jews and Gentiles alike will bow down to him and obey him, right? And so that is a very clear messianic prophecy. And this is something that just prolongs its stay throughout the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, right? To where eventually you have David and he is a foreshadowing of Jesus through this, right? David is a prince from the tribe of Judah. He ends up getting a crown. He ends up being a king. God makes a covenant with David and tells him that his dynasty will last forever and he will have eternal dominion and the Messiah is going to come through him, 
right? And so whenever you're reading through the scriptures and you look at the Old Testament prophets, most often, whenever they are clearly speaking about the Messiah, this is who they're talking about. They're talking about the Davidic Messiah, right? So biblically speaking, we would call this figure Messiah ben David, uh, ben being the Hebrew word for son of, right? So Messiah, son of David, Messiah ben David, or you could also call him Messiah ben Judah, right? Messiah, son of Judah, right? He's the powerful king anticipated most clearly and anticipated throughout the entire Hebrew scriptures. It is clear that this is the Messiah most of the Jews were yearning for whenever you look at the first century AD. And Matthew clearly identifies Jesus with this figure throughout his gospel, right? So I'm not trying to take away that at all, right? And that's mainly what I was talking about whenever we talked about this verse last time, right? I was looking for passages where we were identifying the Messiah ben David as the Messiah, right? Like, is, like how is he a Netzer? How is he a Natsir? Right? That's what we were trying to figure out. However, this is where things change up a little bit for us today. In rabbinic literature, um, there is also a very clear teaching that in some sects of Judaism, they held to a belief in a second Messiah-like figure, not known as the Messiah ben David, but Messiah ben Joseph, right? Messiah, son of Joseph, right? And this isn't really a fringe theory. This is something that many people are aware of, but usually the, the only people I really see talking about it are people in more scholarly realms. I haven't seen a lot of um, I don't like the term layman. I, I don't see a lot of people in just non-scholarly realms talking about this, right? But whenever you actually examine the rabbinic literature, right, in the early formative years after, like, like, like just the earliest stuff that we have, right, whenever you actually examine that, they are talking about this Messiah ben Joseph figure all the time. And really, this is what we would call, like, they have a two-Messiah view, right? There's going to be the Messiah ben Joseph and the Messiah ben David, right? Messiah son of Joseph, Messiah son of David. Most often, though, Christians are only aware of Messiah, son of David, right? Because that's the one we usually talk about. That's the one that's clearly talked about in scriptures. Whereas Messiah ben Joseph, you got to look a little bit more deeply for. But he's definitely there. And it's a bit confusing because people are trying to figure out, are these going to be two separate people? What's going on here? And most Jewish people seem to think that they're going to be separate people. Um, but... I think that whenever you actually examine the New Testament scriptures, the New Testament scriptures are identifying Jesus as both, right? He is both Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. And I wish that I could honestly just condense all this teaching down into one thing. I think eventually I'm probably going to have to just do a whole series on the Messiah ben Joseph idea because not enough people talk about it. And there's just this whole robust theology, both in scripture and in the earliest traditions after the Hebrew scriptures were compiled and stuff. There's just so much about it that I do eventually want to just like do a whole series on it. I don't know when that would be. That might be years from now, but just for now, just, just kind of roll with me and trust me here. I've known about this whole Messiah Ben Joseph thing a whole, like, like for a while, right? I've known for about it for a few years and I've, I've dabbled with it because it's always intrigued me, but I'd never looked that deeply into it until recently, right? There's this book that I'd had, uh, like I've had for a few years, but I finally just started reading it. It's by David C. Mitchell. And this is really the first, like, at least in English, this is one of the first like scholarly tomes that was fairly easily accessible that I could find on Messiah ben Joseph. And I've been just reading through this on my own time just because I'm a nerd and I just like reading scholarly stuff for fun. And I've been reading this and he didn't even really talk much about what I'm going to talk about in this video in his book. He, he talked about it a little bit, but it was the stuff I was reading in the book that got me thinking. And I started making some connections that I think will tie into what we're talking about 
in Matthew here. And I feel like I've been teasing you enough, so let's actually just get to it. Um, this is what David C. Mitchell says about Messiah ben Joseph. And, and once again, you're just going to have to kind of take him at his word here in the quote I'm about to read, because you got to realize that what I'm about to read are literally the opening words of his book, right? This is literally page one. These, this is how he opens up his book, and it's kind of like his hook to get people invested. But the rest of his book goes about like actually defending the claims that he's making in the quote I'm about to read, right? So just trust me, like if, if you want to look more into it, just go buy the book and read it, right? It, it's hundreds of pages long, like, and there's all these scholarly citations and he, he's done his research, right? So you're going to have to roll with me because I don't have time to defend this entire thing. But this is what he says on the opening page of his book. There is in rabbinic literature, a figure called Messiah ben Joseph. This Messiah comes from Galilee to die, pierced by ruthless foes at the gate of Jerusalem. Upon his death, Israel are scattered amidst the nations, but his death confounds Satan, atones for sin, and abolishes death itself, and then he is raised to life again. In these documents, Messiah ben Joseph always appears before his better-known comrade, Messiah ben David. Nevertheless, Messiah ben Joseph is no minor figure. The Talmud says Messiah ben David cannot come till Messiah ben Joseph appears, right? Like I said, this, like, like you might hear this, and if you're, you've are you never heard this before, you're going to be like, what, where is this coming from? This guy seems like he's pulling this stuff out of his butt. Trust me, this dude's done his research, and he backs it all up in the book, and you can just go on Google, and you can find a lot of the stuff he's talking about here, right? Um, I just, I quoted this mainly because this is where he's just taking all this information, just compacting it together. But whenever you actually look at the earliest rabbinic literature, and you look at the Talmud, and you look at stuff like that, there is this belief in this figure called Messiah ben Joseph, and the things they believe about him are very similar to things that we hold to be true of Jesus, right? And keep in mind, it wouldn't make sense for Jewish people after the time of Jesus to make this stuff up because they're identifying this Messiah ben Joseph figure in ways that are very similar to Jesus. And if they were making it up, that would actually be working against them because they rejected Jesus, right? And so these are just legitimate teachings that they are picking up from the Hebrew scriptures, and notice the things that are true here, right? The Messiah comes from Galilee, right? Well, it's interesting because Messiah ben David is usually associated with Judah, right? He's associated with the lower region of Israel. But Messiah ben Joseph comes from Galilee. And if you're in Matthew chapter 2, where did Joseph and Mary and Jesus just move to? They just moved to Galilee, right? And once again, you haven't seen how this plays into the word not seer yet. We're going to get there in just a second. But... What I'm pointing out is that there are definitely things about Messiah ben Joseph that actually line up a little bit more with the Jesus that we see in the Gospels. Whereas Messiah ben Judah, or Messiah ben David, he seems to kind of more associate himself with the Jesus that we see as the coming conquering king in the Gospels, right? And really what I'm, I'm not in the Gospels, in the book of Revelation, right? And what I'm arguing for is that Jesus is both, right? He is both Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. The idea is that this is the complex thing about the first two, like, like the two separate comings of Christ that we have a tough time wrapping our minds around. But Messiah ben Joseph, he comes from Galilee to die. He is pierced by ruthless foes at the gate of Jerusalem. The idea of Messiah ben David is that he is a conquering king, just like David was in the Bible, right? Messiah ben Joseph is a suffering servant, just like Joseph was in the book of Genesis, and now you're hearing me throw all this stuff at you, and I know, I feel like I sound like a crazy man just because if you haven't heard of the Messiah ben Joseph thing, it seems like I'm making it up. I'm really not. Um, but you're probably wondering, what am I getting at with this whole thing, right? What does this have to do with the prophecy that Matthew cited? Well, here's where we go 
back to Genesis 49, right? If you remember, I cited Genesis 49 earlier because Genesis 49 is where Joseph begins to bless, uh, so not Joseph, uh, Jacob begins to bless his sons, right? This is the passage in Genesis 49 where he blesses Judah and he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him belongs the obedience of all the peoples, right? That's Genesis 49. And that's what Jacob says to Judah. Well, if you move on just a few more verses, Jacob turns to Joseph. And if, if you go back to the previous chapter, Genesis 48, you see that Jacob actually chose Joseph to be his firstborn in place of Reuben, his actual firstborn. Reuben did some pretty messed up stuff. And so basically Jacob kind of like disowns Reuben from the firstborn status. And he identifies Joseph as his new firstborn. And he gives Joseph a double blessing, a double inheritance through Manasseh and Ephraim. Right? So there's this complex um, Old Testament history uh, and context and stuff behind it. Right, But this is what Jacob says to Joseph. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall and the archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and they bore a grudge against him. But his bough remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel from the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts of the womb, the blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the top of the head of the one who is a Nazir among his brothers. Right? Jacob looks to Joseph and he calls Joseph a Nazir, right? He calls him a distinguished one, a set-apart one, a prince amongst his brothers. He turns to Joseph, the second youngest of Jacob's sons, and he says, you are the firstborn in my eyes. And not only are you the firstborn, you are a Nazir amongst your brothers. You are a prince. You are a distinguished one. You are a set-apart one amongst your brothers. This is the same exact word from which we get the name Nazareth, right? He calls Joseph a Nazir, and if you look at the broader context of Genesis 49, the way that Genesis 49 actually starts is with Jacob saying that he is prophesying over the future of his children, right? He's prophesying what's going to happen to them, right? So whenever he talks to Judah, he's not simply talking about the man Judah. He's talking about the tribe from Judah and this ultimate person to come from Judah. Well, whenever he's talking to Joseph, it's the same thing, right? Not only is Joseph set apart, but there's going to be one who comes from Joseph who is a Nazir about his brothers. He will be called a Nazir. He will be called a Nazarene, right? And this is even advanced by the fact that whenever you look at verse 24, it says, from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Another way that this could be translated, that, that last line there, is that it could say, from there comes the shepherd, or is coming the shepherd, the stone of Israel, right? The shepherd, like shepherding throughout scripture is used as a kingly term right? Shepherds are leaders, right? David himself is going to be a shepherd that turns into a leader. Moses is a shepherd who turns into a leader. God himself is called our shepherd, right? Jesus is the good shepherd, right? Pastors, they are, like the word pastor means shepherd, right? Shepherds are leaders. And what Jacob promises here is that a shepherd is going to come from Joseph. And he doesn't simply call him a shepherd. He calls him the stone of Israel, right? This is the phrase that we're going to encounter in Deuteronomy 32 to describe God. Jesus, like God himself, is the rock of Israel. He is the stone. But right here, it's being used to describe somebody to come 
from Joseph, right? And that's just one occurrence, right? But that's not the only occurrence. That is one prophet speaking. But if you actually go to Deuteronomy chapter 33, we also have a very similar occurrence, right? At the end of Deuteronomy, here we have Moses, and now he is not talking to the individual sons. He is talking to the tribes themselves. This is the second to last chapter of Deuteronomy. Moses knows he is about to die, and shortly before he dies, he turns to the tribes and says, I am about to predict to you the things that will come to you during your last days, right? This is what's going to happen. So the context is very similar. Just like Jacob prophesied over his sons, so Moses is prophesying over the tribes. And this is what he says to Joseph. Of Joseph, he said, Blessed of Yahweh be his land, with the choice things of heaven, with the dew, and of the deep lying beneath, and with the choice produce of the sun, and with the choice yield of the months, and with the best things of the ancient mountains, and with the choice things of the everlasting hills, and with the choice things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Let it come to the head of Joseph and to the top of the head of the one who is a Nazir among his brothers. As the firstborn of his ox, splendor is his, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he will push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth. And those are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and those are the thousands of Manasseh. So right here, Moses calls Joseph and the tribe of Joseph the same thing that Jacob called him, a Nazir. Right here we have like remember what Moses uh, remember what Matthew said right it wasn't simply according to the prophet it was according to the prophets plural well here we have two prophets we have Jacob and we have Moses both are being recorded by Moses if we believe that Moses wrote the entire Torah right both are being recorded by Moses but we have Jacob and Moses both looking to Joseph and calling him a Nazir and specifically saying that there's going to be one from him who is a shepherd and he will be a Nazir amongst his people, right? There is going to be one who comes from Joseph who is called a Nazirin, right? A Nazarene, right? That to me is so cool. But from this, you might say, okay, but David, do we have any reason to think that in the text of Matthew, Matthew is trying to call Jesus the son of Joseph? Well, yes, we do, right? Compare Matthew to the Gospel of Luke, right? If you look at the Gospel of Luke, it is very clear that Luke is placing a greater emphasis on the Virgin Mary, right? It is telling the story from Mary's perspective. But if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, do you notice whose perspective it is mainly focusing on, right? Well, on one hand, it's focusing on Joseph, and that's because Joseph is descended from David, and therefore he is of the royal line of David. And so by adopting Jesus as his son, he is making David, uh, he is making Jesus the royal heir to David's throne. So that's one reason Matthew focuses on Joseph. But also, do you notice what Joseph's name is? His name is Joseph, right? And so Jesus is literally Messiah, son of Joseph. And whenever you look throughout the rest of the Gospels, do you notice what people call him? They call him one of two things. They say, help us, son of David. Or they say, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? Right? They call him both things. Right? They call him Ben David and they call him Ben Joseph. They identify him as both. And these are the two things that Jesus is typically called. And you might be saying, okay, David, this is a bit of a stretch. Do we have any evidence that in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is specifically associating Jesus's father, Joseph, with the Joseph from the Genesis story. And yes, we do. One thing that we've been tracking throughout this whole study has been how Matthew is portraying Jesus as fulfilling the story of Israel by living out its history, 
right? So whenever you open up in Matthew chapter one, the book, the whole story opens up with a book of the genealogy, which begins in the beginning, right? So like literally the opening text says the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. If you go to the book of Genesis, the whole book of Genesis is structured with books of the genealogy. In Hebrew, it's the phrase Toledot, right? Books of the genealogy of the heavens and the earth, the books of the genealogy of Adam, the books of the genealogy of Terah, right? If you look at Genesis, that's how it's structured. That's how Matthew is structured. The first word of Matthew's narrative is the Greek word Genesis, right? The beginning of Jesus Christ came about in this way, right? We usually translate it as birth, but the word is Genesis. The first book of the Bible is Genesis, right? The way that the story of Matthew opens up is with a miraculous virgin birth initiated by the Spirit of God in the same way to the Spirit of God going and breathing life into Adam, right? The only other virgin birth in the entire Bible, right? Adam was not born from, like, he wasn't born of a virgin woman, but he was born from the ground, right? He's the only other person to have been born from circumstances other than sexual union, right? And so we have the Spirit of God hovering over and initiating this miraculous birth. And then immediately, you turn and you have this blessings child promised by God to unlikely parents, just like Isaac was promised to Abram and Sarai, and Jesus is promised to Mary and Joseph, right? Mary and Joseph are the counterparts to Abram and Sarai, right? Abram and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah, they are super old and they have demonstrated that they are barren. Well, Joseph and Mary are super young and they're not even married yet, so they can't have kids, right? So neither can have kids, but it's from two totally different circumstances, but God foretells and promises that this promised child will be born. And eventually he is born. And then the next thing that we see after this, right? So we're walking through the story of Genesis. And then what Matthew focuses on is that Joseph keeps receiving dreams by which he is told what is going to happen in the future. Well, is there any other person in the book of Genesis who is often associated with dreams and interpreting them and helping figure out what's going to happen in the future? Yes. And his name is also Joseph, right? So Matthew has made it very clear in his gospel that he is comparing Jesus's father, Joseph, with the Joseph in the Bible, right? He's not saying they're the same thing, same person. He's not saying that this is a reincarnation or anything like that. That's not what he's doing. He is simply drawing a comparison, right? He's pointing out, and the Hebrew readers, the original Jewish audience would have picked up on this, right? He's pointing out that there happen to be two characters in the Bible who are named Joseph, they're both associated with dreams. They both save their families and deliver their families from death. And they escape the metaphorical Egypt. Like, well, well they, they escape tyrants, right? And they escape famine and death. And like, they escape all that stuff through interpreting their dreams, right? And they save their family, right? Well, that's exactly what we see happening both in Genesis. And that's what we see happening in the Gospel of Matthew. And so Matthew has demonstrated that he is trying to draw a connection between the Genesis Joseph and the Matthew Joseph, right? Both the Genesis Joseph, who is the son of Jacob, and the Joseph, who is the father of Jesus. And so we already have that connection made. And so then, now you have Joseph taking his family up to Galilee, which throughout the rest of the scriptures, like I just want to highlight that those passages I just read are not the only passages from which we get stuff about Messiah ben Joseph, right? The Messiah ben Joseph passages are throughout the entire scriptures. I just cited the ones where he's called a Nazir, right? And so whenever you look at all the passages about Messiah ben Joseph, he comes from Galilee. Well, we just saw that Joseph took his family up to Galilee. And then what does Matthew cite? He shall be called a Nazir, 
Well, if you're tracking through the story of Genesis, we just saw Joseph interpreting dreams. What would you expect next? Joseph is called to not see it, right? Because that's what both Jacob and Moses predicted about the person to come from Joseph, right? That's the main thing I wanted to highlight here, right? I just was, I hope I conveyed this well. I hope I didn't sound like a like conspiracy theorist nut as I was explaining this. Um, if I did, it's probably just because I was so excited about it. Um, and, and I just want to remind you that I'm still learning about this Messiah Ben Joseph stuff. Uh, I've studied it for quite a bit now because I've been reading this book and I've been going in depth and I've been studying the scriptures to like test it all and stuff. Um, but I, I, eventually I want to be able to articulate it a little bit more clearly. Uh, and so if it sounds that I'm not like super confident in how to articulate it quite yet, it's because I'm still learning. Right. But the more I reflected on it, the more I was like, I know this is going to break up the flow of our whole Matthew series. But the more I thought about it, the more confident I've become that that is probably the key text which Matthew is alluding to, right? He's probably referring to those two texts in both Genesis and Deuteronomy where it says that Joseph will be called a Nazir among his brothers, right? Because now here we have Jesus being called a Nazarene, right, amongst his brothers, the people of Israel, right? And so I think that's probably the key text that Matthew has in mind. But then all the other things that we talked about in those other videos, I think those are also things that Matthew is probably including there, right? Because I think Matthew is just brilliant. And what he's doing is he's tying all these different uh, messianic like threads together um, into this one single thing. But just the more I've reflected on it, the more I've thought, man, you know what? Of all the different arguments, this to me seems the most cohesive right? And it only becomes cohesive the more you study the Old Testament scriptures and actually kind of flesh out this theology, uh, to where I think if you don't know the Old Testament as much, I think the other arguments actually hold greater weight. But the more you study the Old Testament scriptures, the more I think this one comes to the forefront. And that's what I'm kind of experiencing myself. And so all I wanted to do today is I just wanted to share that with you. Uh, and so I know this was a bit of a different video. And once again, if I sound like I was just rambling and going nuts over here, it's probably because I am. And it's also because I'm super duper tired. <laughs> that I probably need to go to bed. Um, but I, I hope that this at least got you thinking. And if anything, maybe it just made you interested in looking up this Messiah Ben Joseph thing, because I find it absolutely fascinating. And if you know any other like good resources um, to study about it, I, I would love if you'd let me know that, because um, really David Mitchell's is the only one I can find like in English. I mean, there's a lot of stuff on like, I mean, th there's a lot of like, I guess, primary sources that you could read just like on Hebrew websites and stuff like that. But some of them haven't even been translated to English and I'm not fluent enough in Hebrew to be able to uh, work with all of that. But um, yeah, so I, I hope that um, this got you thinking at least. And uh, if anything, I guess it reminded you that we've come a long ways in this study, even though I know that we're like 30 something videos into this, but um, <laughs> we're not even halfway, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, we've still we've still covered some good ground, and hopefully we're getting some good depth out of it, and hopefully you are enjoying it. Thank you so much for watching this video. Um, once again, I know it's super random, but hopefully, Lord willing, next week we will finally go in Matthew chapter 11, and it'll be a good time. Have a great day. Keep a smile on your face. Don't let anybody steal your joy. Remember who you are, and of course, Maranatha.